This is Hank 3, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is Tony Maranaki of Total Music and Entertainment, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, Aaron. On today's episode, we have Hank 3. We're going to talk to Hank 3 because he is coming through town here on 11-11-11 to the altar bar. And that song that you just heard was actually a song off of one of the four albums that Hank has released called Fading Moon from the album Gutter, Gutter Town. A little more in the traditional country vein, and I've got a couple other songs that I think you're going to enjoy and maybe be surprised about to hear from Hank 3, because if you're familiar with Hank at all, you know he is the um, grandson of Hank Williams Sr. and the son of Hank Williams Jr., and so he has a strong legacy of country in his blood, but he also has a love for alternative rock, punk rock and metal. Um, so he has put together a very eclectic mix of great music, and we're going to listen to some of that here today. So, without any further ado, let's get into one other song by Hank. This is called Tim Dow, Black Cow, Cattle Calling. Now, I was thinking about just turning the audience loose with this song, but I want to explain to you a little bit about what you're hearing, because we're going to talk about this in the interview, too. But Hank had the foresight to take a look at something that's been going on in our country for a long time called auctioneers. So he took some of um, some of the finest cattle auctioneers, got, got them to... I guess, consent to the recording, and he put some music to it. And as you can think, um, if you know how fast auctioneers can speak, then you're probably going to guess that, hey, I bet you this is in the speed metal variety, or possibly even the deathcore variety, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it is some pretty cool stuff. So we're going to listen to Tim Dow, Black Cow, Cattle Calling, from the Cattle Calling record, and then we're going to get into our interview with Hank 3. <laughs> gentlemen welcome to our show today on the phone with me i have hank three hank how you doing today doing good hanging in there just been off the road a little bit uh recouping in east tennessee now excellent now i read that you live just outside of nashville is that correct yes born and raised here 
and uh, you know, I don't know. I like it. The rent's not too expensive, and you're able to have some, you know, some room, not driving the uh, neighbors crazy with rehearsals and stuff like that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I, I lived down in the um, in the Murfreesboro area for about a year. Okay. I enjoy that area down there. Well, that's so, where my son's going to school, so I'm there a little bit. Oh, that's cool. Now, um, Hank, for those members of our audience who are not familiar with you, can you give us a little background of your style and what um, what our listeners can expect to hear when they come to see you in, in, in concert? Well, if you're coming to see a live show, you're always going to get like an hour and a half of country, my version of country first. Um, I always pay my respects. And uh, then as the show goes on, there's a little bit of a, uh, what I call the hellbilly sound, which is kind of like the Reverend Horton heat on steroids is what I would say. And then there is, um, nowadays we're doing a, a, the attention deficit domination part of the show, which is more of a doom oriented kind of, sound and at the very end of the show I'm doing uh, the three bar ranch kind of speed metal cattle calling project so you're almost hearing four different styles of uh, of music when you're coming to see me live now, has that always been your formula and or did you start doing that formula because of those four new albums that you put out well no it's always for the last probably 10 to 12 years it's always been country, hillbilly, and it used to be Ash Jack was my more hardcore heavy metal band. So the, the majority of the folks are used to seeing a Jekyll and Hyde kind Gotcha. So has that Jekyll and Hyde like live performance driven you to put out these four albums all at the same time? Is that what drove to that release? Well, there, there's a few different angles on that. The first angle is trying to do something different in the music business that uh, in my eyes has not really been done before and the second angle is I've been held back for so many years I really don't have that much music to show for it for as long as I've been in the game there's not that much to show uh, the third angle is I've never been able to sell my own CD Oh, at, at my own show in 17 years. Uh, so that's huge just to be able to have all different um, styles and sounds for the people to see to give them an option to buy it. So, so there's a lot first? of... Go oh, ahead. Sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. Uh, so there's a lot of different reasons kind of why I um, did all four. But the main thing is making a niche in musical history for me. So is this then your first tour and set of releases on your own? No, I've always fronted all my tours. I mean, this is... Most bands are sponsored by a big record label that pay for their bus and all that. I've never been like that. Curb Records never paid for any of my tours. I always fronted the tours myself. That's how a lot of bands get in trouble and get in debt. And, um, you know, so I've always fronted all my own shows. I've always toured to tour just because that's what I do. Now, is this the first time I've ever toured 
with my own record label? Yes. Is this the first time I've ever toured where I've got to sell my own product? Yes. I used to refuse to sell Curb Records CDs at all my shows. So it is kind of a new beginning. That's fantastic. Now, can we talk about um, can we talk about your your logo? Because I was surfing on your site. I absolutely love your logo with the, um, the cowboy hat skull and the mohawk skull, and then the big three right in the middle. How did you come up with that with that sort of sort of imagery? Because that's one of the coolest logos I think I've seen in a long time. When I was when I was younger, in my early twenties, I used to hang out at a tattoo shop called Dancing Dragon that's up by Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and um, a couple of the artists up there helped me come up with it. Uh, I had it done in my skin before I really had it um, more so made a logo. And it just kind of fit what I was doing as far as the, the country sound and then the, the hellbilly rock and honky-tonkin' kind of vibe to it. And that's just kind of it shows a little bit of our crowd out there, how we have a diverse audience that's usually... It can be people from 18 all the way to 80. Rednecks, uh, heavy metal kids, bikers, average guys. Um, You know, we have a pretty wide variety of folks that come out to see us. So that's just kind of a a little bit of the inspiration behind that. You know, it's great to see that you have such a wide variety of of people coming to see you because your sound is so diverse. How did you develop that sound? I mean, obviously, you know, any, anyone who knows your history knows that, you know, your grandfather was Hank Sr., your dad's Hank Jr., and, you know, you, like, I came to know you more through your punk and metal projects than I ever heard you do country. So how did you kind of spin off, get into the punk, the, the punk and metal scene, but then still retain those country roots? Can you talk to me about how that developed? Well, at first, I was always just more involved in, in, in punk rock and heavy metal bands, being younger, you know, doing everything I could to, to play in a band and tour in the tri-state area. And it, I was a drummer. And I think being a drummer helped me stay true to a lot of my roots. Um, you know, I had to get a lot more serious when I had a one-night stand that waited three years to tell me I had a son and they served me papers on stage when I was opening up for a band called Buzz Oven. And I had a judge tell me that I owed $60,000 in back pay and for a, a, a kid playing drums, making 20 bucks every week. That was a pretty intense uh, thing that happened to me. So that's kind of why I had to get pretty serious. I had a judge tell me playing music wasn't no real job, and I went to show him, well, yeah, playing music can be a real job, That's and awesome. I can survive off of it, and, uh, you know, I always had an independent kind of way of thinking, a more uh, DIY, and more, um, you know, being a drummer, I think, helped stay true to my roots. At first, I got into the country game, and just did what I had to do. I used to own the first two years. I just played a country show. And then when I got a little bit of, uh, the pay, uh, the 60 grand, you know, started slowly paying it off. I was able to bring in the hellbilly and the ass Jack part of the show and, and start being different, uh, 
Because if I was just a country singer, it wouldn't be as cool as it is. If I was just a heavy metal singer, we wouldn't have that uh, diverse crowd. Yeah, I got to agree, because I, um, I got to listen to all four of those records. I just kind of put them on my iPod, and, or my iPod and put them on shuffle. And man, you are just all over the board, and you pull them all off really well. Like when you do the country stuff, it's country, but it's... It's good country, like like there there's that raw like energy, like like the the whole like hillbilly kind of kind of sound going on there, and then you know when you do the metal man, it's still authentic. Like you can tell that you really live and breathe all these genres. Absolutely, man. I mean, the whole house is dedicated to it. It's what I do twenty four seven. I mean, it's um, I love old classic uh, rock and roll and and and. I don't know, man. It's just always been kind of a therapy to me, and uh, there's still all kinds of older music that I'm that's new to me, and uh, bands like Pagan Altar and uh, all kinds of just '70s old school rock is what I've been listening to right now. So it never ends, you know. It's always an inspiration, and just being a diverse musician. If it's you know people like Les Claypool or Mike Patton or Buzz from the Melvins offering me that inspiration to do what I do, uh, that's cool. Now, how many different instruments do you play? Because I, I think I've seen you like is reading the different projects. I've seen you play bass, guitar, and drums. At least those three. How many other instruments do you play? And how much did you? Uh, how many different instruments did you play on these current records? Well. I, I, in general, I just mess around with keyboards, drums, guitar, vocals, and, you know, I might have fun with a banjo or a cello or a fiddle every now and then. Um, on the new record, I played drums on all of it, on all of them, and a guitar, uh, just rhythm guitar. When you're hearing all that chicken picking and all that soloing going on, uh, that's not me. You know, I'm only a good rhythm player. Uh, I've never understood music theory, but I know how to write songs, uh, record records, mix records, master records, and all that stuff. So I'm kind of and uh, limited as a musician, but I, you know, I think it creates something different since I'm not used to a normal structure. No, and you know, it's, it's interesting now to know that you played the drums on all those because listening to to all the all the songs I listened to, I would have honestly not guessed that it would have the same drummer on all those recordings. That's just part of the diversity, man. I mean, a the beauty about recording yourself is when you're feeling the energy, you got to do it right then and there. You don't have to wait for someone to show up and then, you know, by the time he gets there you're already past the peak. So, um, you know, that was an in, intense project, just doing all the drums, getting into the different fields. You know, it's the, in the past, I've always played drums like on one or two songs, but uh, this is the first time I've, I've played drums or, or like Attention Deficit Domination. I'm playing everything on that whole CD. So. Yeah. Um, that's just a little different. And Three Bar Ranch, I'm playing everything on it. Um, but the country records is really where I get to see some of the super pickers and some of the 
the guys that really know their instruments inside and out. And it's always a joy to see them come in and make it look so easy whenever they do a track. Now, let's talk about uh, the Three Bar Ranch. So, Cattle Colony okay. was the, um, is, the, is the new record there. And I, I didn't know what to expect at first. And then it started to hit me what was going on here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you recorded a bunch of different auctioneers um, auctioning cattle and then put music to that. Is that kind of kind of what went on? And how did you come up with this idea? Uh, yes, that's what happened. Um, unfortunately, I lost probably 50% of the auctioneers. Um, some of the fastest guys I lost because they didn't understand what I was doing or they didn't feel comfortable. Um, if you type in Hank 3, you know, there's a lot of different kind of reads that you get. Yeah. And most of these men are 45 years and above and um, just set in their ways is the best way to say it. So yeah. a lot of them just didn't understand what I was doing. But the other guys like Tim Dowler and Mitch Jordan and all these other folks that uh, helped me out on this project, hats off to them, a big thank you. And that's, you know, I was just trying something different. I was raised around cattle farms, and I used to go to the auction and barns with my granddad, and I've seen a lot of uh, that growing up. And I, I thought it would be an interesting twist uh, in heavy metal. You know, the speed matching up with the speed and uh, it kind of goes with the, some of the country theme that I've been doing. And uh, it just felt like a natural fit to me. Yeah, I got to say, it was pretty cool. When I first listened to it, cause I, I was seeing like names and then song titles. I'm like, what is going on here? And then I heard it and then it just slowly started to occur to me what you were doing. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant. Like I, I never, I would have never thought to put those two things together, but man, they just, they really meshed. Well, it, 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 it can, you know, that record is definitely not for everybody. It, it's for a certain few out there. A lot of people are confused by it. It's a very anxiety, frantic kind of sounding record. Um, it's kind of outside of the box. The music is kind of the same, but the idea is just kind of new and, and might be rubbing some people the wrong way or they're just not getting it. So... But for me personally, it was a, a lot of fun uh, making that record and uh, learning it with other musicians has definitely been a very uh, intense procedure. You know, every time I've gone on tour, I've had to have a new drummer learn that. And that's that's been, a, a you know, very intense in itself. I can imagine. I mean, you're really putting down some beats on that one. It's a lot of strange stuff. It's not to a really basic structure. And when you're another drummer trying to learn that, um, that can get really tricky. So, but it's fun, you know. At the end of the show, we're having a great time being able to pull it off live. Now, you've been involved in a lot of other projects. Because as I was looking down your resume, there was um, you're involved in the band Super Jordan Ritual with Phil Anselmo and Pantera. You also were on the Rebel Meets Rebel project, um, as well as one of my favorite projects, the Rise Above project for the West Memphis Three. Um, can you talk about how you came to get involved in, all, in so many different things, and again, so far outside the country? Well, it's basically all those 
people you've mentioned are kind of heroes of mine, and I just have a lot of respect for, you know, the bands that had longevity and not worrying about being a one-hit wonder. And um, Rebel Meets Rebel, we'll talk about that for a second. I was playing in Fort Worth, Texas, and David Allen Coe and Dimebag were standing on the side of the stage. Um, you know, Pantera was always around when I was growing up here in Nashville. They, a lot of people don't know, but Cowboys from Hell was recorded here in Nashville. And when they didn't have anything to do, they were kind of going out and seeing live bands back in the day. So I always had this kind of history with, with Pantera and, but David and, and Dimebag said, Hey man, you want to go to the house and record a song tonight? And I'm like, you know, of course, I'm sitting here with, you know, two of my, my heroes. So, uh, that's how I went and, you know, was part of that evening and part of that history. Uh, the, the, the rise above project, Henry Rollins has always known. He's been a very big inspiration in my life. And basically, uh, he's, you know, read a lot of things I've said about him and also black flag and, he he just basically called me up and asked if I would want to be, uh, you know, part of the project. And I was saying, well, of course, I you know I believe in the cause and uh, whatever you need, I'll make it happen. So um, it, it's good to see all that hope after you know 17 to 20 years of those kids being in jail that you know always have hope and because you know, it can make a difference. It's uh, the big thing right now is we need to find out who actually murdered those children. You know, there's still someone out there that's justice has not been served for that family. Yeah. Um, and if you're talking, yeah. And if you're talking about the, uh, like the Melvins, when I'm on this on the Crybaby record with them, I would just go out to their shows and, and finally got to meet them. And, uh, you know, got to talk to him a while. I had Dale Crover come in and play on one of my records. And so a lot of those people just knew how much I loved the underground kind of music. And uh, I guess, you know, word spreads that I'm uh, very into that style. And, you know, going to the live shows really had a lot to do with getting to know some of these people. Now, touching back on <clears throat> Henry Owens and the Black Flag reference, so I kind of noticed that your um, Hank 3 logo with the skull and the, the Mohawk Cowboy skulls, and then the, like the three in the middle, that kind of yes. looks like a tip of the hat to the Black Flag bars. Was that intentional or is that accidental? No, I mean, that's, you know, A, we've, got, we've had permission from, you know, if it's Henry Rollins or the original singer of Black Flag or, or Pettibon himself, uh, we've we've always had you know respects from that camp, and that's what it is more than anything is a way of showing respect. And I think that over the years they've seen me stick to my guns and put out a lot of hard work, and you know trying not to just be a one-hit wonder and trying to put on the longest show for the cheapest ticket price out there. And uh, they respect my work ethic and uh, how I didn't take the easy way out. And that's what um, I think is 
has made them kind of proud over the years and have given me a blessing to use that. Oh, that's awesome. Cause I absolutely love that logo. Um, and then talking about your work ethic, I got to say, just reading the projects you've done, seeing everything that's going on, on your website, you are a workaholic. And one thing that's really impressed me is how you build up such a community for your fans. I was on the custom boards checking out the things you had there. You could see the pictures of your amps being done. You could post tabs. Like, how have you fostered such a community with your fan base? Uh, well, a lot of that, I mean, the old country way in general is you do your show and you say hello. That's how everyone used to do it. And uh, I've had some of my biggest rock and roll heroes kind of snub me, and I've had some of my uh, country heroes uh, snub me also. And I never wanted to be like that to my fans. And that's why I always just after my performance, I kneel down and I'll shake every hand or take a picture with whoever wants one. And to me, that's the best marketing plan you could ever have. It's something money can't buy, and it makes the fans feel kind of connected uh, to what you do. You know, um, some people think think that it's cheesy to do that, but there's a million and one rock stars that do their show and go straight to the bus and leave right after they're done. And for me, uh, that it's just a way of saying thanks and trying to be there for my fans. And I think over the years that has developed. Um, a very strong foundation for us. Now, and I think it's a great thing. I mean, it's not cheesy at all. You know, and especially like in, in, t- in today's day and age where you can be so far removed from some bands, it is really great to see, you know, an artist who's really showing appreciation because, I mean, you know, that's why you're there, right? And without the fans buying records, what are you going to do? Oh, absolutely. A lot of bands have forgotten that. And, that's another reason why I've always kept this in a bar. You know, until the day I die, I will always be a bar band. I've turned down the big arenas and and not let uh, the the machine make us something that we're not. And that's why I've always kept this intimate and kept us in the bars, uh, trying to keep it real in my eyes. Well, Hank, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time. So good luck on the rest of the tour. Well, we'll be out there. If you want to see the tour dates, you can go to hank3.com, or if you want to order any of the records, you can buy it straight from myself at hank3.com, and we'll get them out to you. I always wanted to learn to play guitar, but never had the time. Then I heard about Progressions Music Studio. Progressions introduced me to an entirely new and convenient method of music instruction. They brought the music to me. The instructors from Progressions Music Studio came to my home with their knowledge and expertise, which saved me time and money. They worked around my schedule and tailored a program around my needs and skill level. Best of all, I learned to play music like a guitar king of the 1960s. We didn't spend all of our time with drills or tunes from the 1860s. Progressions Music Studio offers a lot more than guitar. In fact, they have instructors for almost all instruments. Now I can rock it out on my electric like never before. Just imagine what they can do for you or the budding musician in your family. Don't make excuses. Make music. Check them out on the web at progressionsmusicstudio.com. That's P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S-I-O-N-S, musicstudio.com. Or call 724-777-4678.
All right, and we are back. So that song you just heard was called Make a Fall. It's from Hank 3's Attention Deficit Domination record. Um, probably my favorite record of the four records that he put out. Although I gotta say, I do love the cattle calling, and I also do love the country on there. Um, and if my mom's listening, she's probably about to have a small heart attack right now, hearing me admit that I like any country at all, because I've never, ever said that as a teen. Um, but it's funny, like, because I do like the music that Hank 3 put, puts out, and he's just such a great guy to talk to. I was telling him he's a man after my own heart, and I was even telling my mom, because um, we were talking about how excited I was about, you know, talking to a legacy. I grew up listening to Hank Sr. with my grandmother, Hank Jr. with my friends in high school, and now I get to talk to Hank 3. And I was telling mom, I said, this is the kind of guy that I wish was our neighbor growing up, because I was a musician in an out-in-the-middle-of-nowhere kind of area at the time. Now, since the area where I, where I grew up has grown up, and there's people all over the place, but when I was there, there weren't a lot of kids, let alone a lot of musicians, let alone a lot of musicians that wanted to play metal. Um, and he's the kind of guy I wish I would have had as my neighbor because I would have had um, a kindred spirit to go around and play music with. So um, that was our interview with Hank 3, and that concludes our artist series. Now let's shift gears and get back into our musician series. So we have another segment um, in our producer series we've been doing with uh, Tony Maranaki, and this segment is called Collaborating Remotely. I just want to go um, say, hey, thanks again to Tony for doing these series with us. Him and I spent probably at least three hours on the phone putting all these together and coming up with you know the questions, and he was just very, very patient with me. As I'm sure you've heard some of the questions, maybe they're very rudimentary, but... Um, you know, I was trying to think from, you know, when I was starting out as a musician the first time I recorded, and even the things I don't know now, because there's still so many things that I don't know when I sit down in my home studio here to record. Um, so thanks, Tony, for making this a great series. We will get into that series, and then that will end our show. So remember, check out um, ironcityrocks.com. Check out our Facebook page. As always, thank you for the participation in the Facebook page. We've had a lot of great discussions out there. Um, I love seeing everything that you guys are saying and being able to carry on the conversation. That is facebook.com slash ironcityrocks. Um, you can follow us at twitter, uh, twitter.com slash ironcityrocks. And coming, 11, 11, 11. We have something big to announce called the Cast Iron Ring. So check it out at castironring.com. More to come on that later. Um, and now, thanks a lot for listening. We're going to get into our final segments, and we'll see you next time. Let's move on to our next topic here. So we'll move from live sound into collaborating remotely. Because with the advent of the Internet, um, it's easier to share files. So have you experienced more clients that wish to collaborate or work with you remotely? Well, yeah, sure. We're working with people, you know, all over the world. Um, and I mean that like literally, uh, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, we have like a little record label here, TME recordings. Well, we have artists everywhere. You know, we have artists in, uh, Pittsburgh, obviously central Pennsylvania. We've uh, got, one of our artists, Daryl Strodes, he's over in China a lot. We have other artists in the UK. So to get, you know, uh, material from them would be impossible uh, 15 years ago uh, for them to send it in a reliable way because you'd have to use 
multi-track uh, tapes and hopefully nothing happened to those uh, in transport. They go through an x-ray machine or something like that. Nowadays with the internet, it's like instantaneous. But you gotta be aware of who you're working with, where they are located, and exactly what the goal of the project is because too many people go into a project like um, with the best of intentions, <laughs> but it turns out really good. But you don't really have any sort of agreement with the person that you're working with. It's just kind of a free throw, uh, free flowing, you know, thing. Uh, it's always good to get that stuff worked out in advance. Um, business can stifle the creative process like now. So the sooner you get a lot of that stuff out in the open before, like I want to collaborate on a song with you that I would like to put on my MySpace page, if anybody uses that anymore or whatever. Um, uh, I want to put on a CD. I want to put on to iTunes. I mean, so many times, especially as you know, I hear being a music publisher, which we're going to talk about later, people come and say, well, we didn't really have a set agreement or, you know, we really didn't have uh, any agreement as to what we were going to do. I just did this or he just did that, you know. So in a way, they had a right to do it because they created it and was part of the creative process, but they didn't have the right to do it without a mutual agreement in place. So, you know, you really have to be, I don't want to say leery, because if you're too leery in this business, you know, paranoia will really make you go nowhere. Sooner or later, you have to open up collaborate with people, collaborate with a band, work with a record label, a publisher, lawyers, managers, you know, sooner or later you have to delegate part of your career into uh, working with somebody else. But this part is like the very beginning. So if you screw it up now, you basically took a song that's probably great that you can't use because some guy over in England and you were collaborating with, you know, got a bug up his butt and doesn't want you to use the song anymore. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Obviously, you can hook up with somebody that's really talented. Uh, you can hook up with somebody clear across the world, you know, and work with them and create something really nice. And uh, it can be a great achievement for you, but it can be a really a bad thing if you don't at least work out some preliminary discussion and maybe even send an email back and forth as you're discussing the song of what your intentions are, print those out so at least you have it. Um, it doesn't matter what country you're with or anything like that. A judge will always look at something optimistically. I mean, when you start to do collaborations and signing contracts and things like that, I always tell people, look at things that how a third person would look at it, not just your side, not just the person that you're collaborating with or working with, but how a third person would look at it. And that third person is usually a judge. <laughs> so that judge would have to decide, well, this is fair or yeah. this is not fair. And that's the best way. So if you even put it in email like, dude, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I want to write a song with you. I want to put it up on my MySpace page. I want to put it on iTunes and a CD later in the year. Make those intentions clear. Get that person's opinion. Print that email. You know, that's a dated document that you could use later. And I'm not saying you could win your case, 
if something would arise or something like that. But at least that's dated documentation that you can use. Right. So always, you know, document uh, things, conversations. And um, if you're working in a collaboration, just be clear. That, you know, I want you to play this. I want this part. You know, again, if you kind of like leave it up to interpretation, like I would like you to play this bass part, but you don't give the guy any guidance, you know, and then you try to release the song later. Well, all the dude did was play the bass part, but he actually added something to the song, you know, like a bass part can, you know, make or break a song. Uh, but if he's playing a melody with his bass and he actually has claim to copyright of that song, ownership of that song. Hmm. Now, how about like the actual, um, the process of the recording? Are there any tips for that? Like as far as maybe working with the same DAW or the same types of files, or um, I've even heard there's a plugin that's called, I think source elements that uh, lets you actually record in real time across the internet. Um, or monitor in real time across the internet, that sort of thing. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Wait, hold on there one second, man. I'm going to have to cough. <clears throat> sorry about that. Not no problem. Yeah, those things aren't bad. Uh, recording in real time across the internet, it's kind of tricky. To, it depends on your internet speed, the software that you're using, and your interface that's capturing the audio to your computer. Sometimes you'll have like a thing called latency where you're playing slightly off and recording slightly off from what's actually playing. So, you know, those things are cool. They're, um, they're good if you want to break a, like a block or something, go online, jam with some folks. Um, you know, you might be out in the middle of the woods somewhere and might know of a drummer or a bass player, but, you know, you want to play with a full band. So things like that, I mean... You know, I don't really frown on, man. I think they're great. They're great for breaking the block. But again, you know, I think it goes back to collaborations and stuff. You have to be uh, realistic as to what you want to do with these things. I've had people pull some of this stuff down and come to me and say, what do you think of that? Oh, that's hot. And then, you know, we try to sign it and find out that, you know, there's 20 other people involved and it was from a music share site, you know, a, not really feasible for a company like you know mine to uh, like use because there's just so much paperwork involved into securing the rights that it's just you know it's it's not even you just couldn't even do it. Um, what's the other part of your question? Um, no, really, you covered all the parts. I was, uh, well, I guess um, the part about like. Anything that you should keep in mind as far as, like, should you agree on file types or, you know, do you need to use the same, like, DAW, the digital audio workstation, or can you, no. you know, work, work friendly between different DAWs? Okay, no, I'm glad, I'm, glad, see, I'm glad we did come back to this. Okay, as far as um, file types, if you're going to record your part and you're, say, recording your part up against somebody's song that's kind of finished, you know, he could send you an MP3 and then you could record that in your own DAW, you should give him back the file in either a WAV or AIF file and like at least a CD quality or better. Uh, it's cool to, you know, exchange ideas in MP3, but I would never advise people, I mean, unless you absolutely have to, you know, I'm not saying never say never, but unless you absolutely have to, 
uh, always mix down or send a recorded part in WAVE or AIF. You can use any DAW uh, that would allow you to export your recorded uh, sound, whether if you were to mix it down or actually uh, the more standard technique nowadays, Pro Tools, Sonar, uh, Cubase, um, uh, Digital Performer, and Logic for people on the Mac side, uh, they will store the recorded sound in an audio folder, usually located within uh, the project or the songs folder. So you can actually take that file and attach it to an email, or uh, depending on how big it is, sometimes you might have to uh, um, use a service like uh, Send It or something like that to... Oh, the You Send It, yeah. Yeah, because sometimes the file is just so big that your email uh, won't allow you to attach a file that that large. But you should, uh, when you're exchanging in that way, send the person the best quality file. So in the end, who's ever going to do the mixing down? And since I'm somebody who does that, <laughs> you want the best quality as possible all the way around. Okay, now that's good stuff. So... You, you brought up one other thing that I was thinking about um, when, when we started talking about the file types. So 16-bit or 24-bit? Do you have a preference? And I guess, like, what hurts? Because there's the 44.1. When you mentioned CD quality, I started thinking about this. Because I know CD quality is 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz. But a lot of people have been doing, what is it, 24-bit and 96 kilohertz? Is that the... Yeah. Like, what's, what's the difference well, on there? Okay, well, 24.96 used to be the recording studio standard, all right? Um, it's very demanding on your machine, very demanding. I highly recommend the home user record at 48K 24-bit, and I'll explain why very simply. Uh, there's been times where somebody has used a CD quality um, track and tried to import it with somebody who they're working at and just have problems because that person's using 48K. Um, you have to do a technique that's called resampling. You can't just change the file type, otherwise it'll, it'll uh, make the file play slightly slower or slightly faster. So if you were going from 48K down to 41 and you didn't resample it, your track would sound slightly faster, like, like it was being sped up. And the opposite, if you were going, you know, up from 44 up to 48, it would sound slightly slower. So um, the, the reason why I suggest 48K, 24-bit, is when you resample it, it's, you just uh, double it. You don't have to use a simple algorithm or a complex algorithm to go from 44.1K to 96K. You just double it. Uh, resampling, you know, I wish I could explain the whole thing to you, but uh, it is the technique that you should use when you're changing sampling rates as opposed to just changing the, uh, the actual file itself. So if you're resampling up from 48K to 96K, it's just a simple, you know, 48 times 2 is 96. Now, I do not recommend using 96K on your home uh, recording studios, uh, it's very demanding. So I say, once again, use the 48K 24-bit 
then if you have to, I mean, nine times out of ten, nine and a half times out of ten, uh, CD quality will be high enough. Uh, but if you don't use at least CD quality or 48K, um, if you are lucky enough to get signed later on, that's one of the things that a record label will make you change uh, or make you go in and re-record, which will actually add cost to your project. You don't want to do that. There's a lot of big changes that are going to be coming up in 2015, industry-wide. Um, yeah, I won't go into them because it's, it's, it's going to be a painfully long discussion and why they're doing it. But, uh, you know, it has to do with the record industry, the movie industry, and defeating the piracy that's, uh, that's happening. I mean, we're all cool with, you know, downloading our favorite, you know, Zeppelin, Godsmack, or, or non-point album, but we don't really think about, you know, if we were in their position, how much money we would be losing out on that kind of stuff. But uh, to get back to it, um, I recommend the home recording people use a, uh, um, a WAV file or AIF if you use Mac, and you should use it at uh, 48K, 24-bit, you can use either your standard PCM wave or your broadcast wave. Uh, Pro Tools native is a broadcast wave where uh, sonar is just your standard wave. Either one's interchangeable. Um, it doesn't really matter. Wow, that really is quite a topic, isn't it? <laughs> I because I'm still trying to process all that. Cause I'm serious, thinking, okay, what am I using at home? I think I've stuck with just the 24-bit 60 or yeah, no, 16-bit 44.1, just to make it easier on myself when I do stuff at home. That's that's <clears> fine. <throat> the 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 difference between 16-bit and 24-bit, I can notice. I mean, I can tell you right away when you bring in a track whether you did it in 16-bit or 24-bit. Uh, the average person probably wouldn't. The average listener, there would be no way. But 24-bit does allow you more clarity. Uh, there's more things going on to ensure that your sound is uh, an exact representation of um, what's happening, what's, what's actually being played. Um, the sound being recorded is not a stream. It's actually pulses of uh, digital information that are being sent at uh, either... 44,000 uh, times a second or 48,000 times a second. But 24-bit, um, you, you definitely get more of a cleanliness overall. <laughs> 